Yes. Or James. Just a bat and tube. It's cold, you know. There's one or two here who can't stand music. Don't worry about it. They won't. They'll like this. Well, it was WWF back then. It was the World Wildlife Foundation. We cared about the pandas. Who's Look him up. What's your dad's name? The, well, there's, my dad is not as known, but if you Google Hulk Hogan, Martin Goldsmith, which is my dad, you'll see a picture of them in a cool pose. He had, Classic he had picture. Big, big guys, Vanessa, big ones. Yeah, yeah. Monsters. It's all real. All true stories. James can testify. Yeah, it's true. James, were you at my party, Pimps and Whores? You were there? Yeah, of course. I put on a nightclub called Pimps and Whores. I don't tell that to everyone. You put on the nightclub? Yeah, I used to run it. it a, actually, the guy I just messaged today, because I went, listen to this, I'm going to go to the Stiebel to try to get in, and I don't have the code, I've forgotten it, and it's freezing, and it's dark, because I'm not used to the cold of England, and I'm just like, and again, comes up a nice religious guy, Shimon Cohen, he's one of my <laughs> oldest friends from Yeshiva, comes up to me, I go, we've got to get a selfie, man. You're the first guy I'm seeing, like, in Edgeware, you know, this time of day. I've just, you know, arrived the day before, but I was busy with family. And uh, it was just so nice. Like, he, we did a picture, and I sent it to Mark Boyan, who was the other guy who ran that nightclub with me, Pimps and Whores. And he's the one who's been, like, putting for, pushing forth all those big signs in Trafalgar Square and in New York. All oh, the, really? Yeah, save the hostages, return, bring them home, all those big signs. He's been pushing, he's like done really well in the media space and uh, it's amazing, like, you know, and he, he said he, he'd loved seeing the picture, I just sent it to him today. So it's just amazing how everything's so circular. We ran that club and then years later, like I'm bumping into one of his oldest friends as well. Uh, Things flows, that's the point. He asked me before why, why I became religious. I, I said I didn't, it's like a journey. It's not like, it's not made me anything, it's like a journey. We're on a journey. And he's been in the jungle. We were in camper van days. We're going to get some cool, cool energy going here with James in the house. Because he, what happened is, you have to know, when I was at your age, it was actually, how old are you, like 18 or that? 17? 27? 18, 19, 20, 22. You look young. Yeah. Most people here are actually 20, but usually there's a yeah. couple of young ones. All right. So maybe a bit younger than you guys, but we went on some cool journeys. And, uh, you learn to try and I was just in Borenwood car park actually, gave me some tra trauma. <laughs> that was funny. Adam Fenton, <laughs> riding with our bikes, because they like fell apart. <laughs> as, as the crew turned up to do us in, our bikes break. Like how? It's like, <laughs> simultaneously, it's like as if they'd like broken it before they turned up. It was really weird, the chains came off. <laughs> we got beat in Borobwood. That was funny. Oh, uh, so many good memories. Anyway, it's a journey, guys. So, what, what, what we're going to do at some point when uh, Ari gets back, we're going to do a song. I know you guys aren't so into, into or some of you aren't seemingly into me, but this song, should, you should be into it. Um, originally, it was called Emily. And uh, our other good friend, I, we went to Prince William's birthday party. Yeah? You know, Johnny hook up, yeah? And we, hello brother. So we went to Prince William's birthday party and uh, it was in a nightclub. I'm not joking, I'm telling the real story. 
And I don't know if you're watching The Crown, but like all the girls are around this guy, yeah? You watch Netflix, I don't know. The Crown, it's just come out about Prince William's teenage life, yeah? And uh, all the girls are screaming and it's a whole scene going on. And we were in his birthday party, so he had like some pretty, pretty girls, yeah, let's say. And I saw this one blonde girl and, you know, like we were a bit players back then. And I was the kind of guy back then, that confidence, I said, that girl, the like, prettiest blonde girl there, she's mine, yeah? And I went up to her, and she was. And um, she used to travel all the way from town, from Central. <laughs> Emily. Yeah, Emily was still sending me letters to, in Brighton when I was in university. I was still getting letters from her years later. But um, she, uh, yeah, she used to travel far to come see me, because she was like all the way in like, you know, the posh part of town, to come just all the way on the train. Anyway, why I'm telling this story, because I wrote a song called Emily, and then, as I started getting on my spiritual journey, not religious, but spiritual, yeah, I uh, wrote a song called Family, and it fit perfectly Emily. Like, Emily transformed or elevated to the level of family. So it wasn't now about the girlfriend, it was about now the next stage, family. And uh, it still fits, the, the chords, everything, it works. So we're going to jam that, I think. Well, we did that once in Jerusalem, remember that? He came once to visit me and with his family, his family in Jerusalem, and we jammed it. Anyway, it's been it's been amazing. Like I, I, I need to talk real now for a little bit about the whole war and peace, real talk. Like my son today, he he's in Canyonis. I don't know if you know what Canyonis. You know what Canyonis is? It's the hot spot in Gaza, in South Gaza. And he was 75 days non-stop from Lebanon to Gaza in the army in the same boots. They, I think they changed uniform once in that whole time period. And uh, living in Gaza's houses, he's in one of the top units there. Barakas at Bermasha. So we're going to have him in mind tonight. Whatever we're doing for his safety and all his friends' safety. Today there was some real action going on down there. It will come out in the news, I'm sure, soon. Um, but we're on the army chat. Yeah, and uh, unfortunately, it was real action. And thank God, his specific group are okay. But not thank God, but uh, the unit is not okay. Uh, his unit, there's a lot of injured soldiers right now down there. It's got really heavy. It's been a really dark day today down there, apparently. So uh, even though there's a lot of miracles going on, that my son and his unit are, are well, but we have to have in mind all those souls that it's not well. So. Uh, crazy days you know I come to London and like one of my uncles drove all the way out from Bournemouth just to come hear about what's going on and reconnect um, because people really care about family when it comes down to it especially in this kind of situation and even if there's different ways of viewing the whole situation in a real way we have to really talk about you know that there, there needs to be a war on terror there needs to be a war on evil just like I was listening um, to a documentary on Netflix and you should check it out Second World War They've like brought back to life all the footage from that time period and coloured it in and brought it alive, literally. It's amazing. The, the, it's only six episodes, and it's, if you want any like, insight to what went on there, it's a really found, powerful way of, of watching it. And you hear Winston Churchill you know, saying, and Roosevelt was sort of following in his footsteps, Winston Churchill saying that there's, 
there's no like room for any mercy in this situation which is you know which is hard because the world wants to have compassion on people which is a good thing and the world's got to a point where it does have compassion and there is much more inclusivity and acceptance but at that time it was so clear oh amazing we've got a gohan that there had to be full-on attack to the enemy because it was a fight against evil it was a clear fight against evil and even though civilians and things, you know, there were price to pay, there was a terrible price. Hundreds of thousands of Germans were killed, but it was, it had, they had to win that war. And, you know, what happened in Japan was a bit more complicated with a nuclear bomb, but nevertheless, like, there had to be victory. It was, it was a war with evil that time. And in some ways, like, the, the terror organizations are a war with evil. We're fighting them. And it's not just in Israel. If we don't deal with it in Israel, if we don't, get it right there how to deal with this threat then it will spread worldwide and it already has on some level so we have to really shut it down right now like the the power the influence to create negativity in the world and you know the, the freedom for the people and all that stuff will happen in the right way not from terror organizations it will come from the right the right agents of goods people who truly care and don't take the money and, and corruptly use it etc etc so we're at a very serious time and my son being out there, when he came back from, from the only Shabbat, he came back in almost three months. He came back to our house and he, you know, you have to understand he's coming in fully armed. He's got like, you know, I don't know if I sent you any pictures, but he's got like all his bullet, you know, bullets and he's got his huge gun and he's got all his equipment and he's putting it all down and ended up on my bed. And I'm like looking at this crazy stuff and, you know, and, uh, you know, during this time period, my wife even had to get armed because she does a mugging and a dumb volunteer. My son said to her, based on intelligence, you have to be armed if you're going into Arab territories to... Because Mug and Adam have no discrimination. They help everyone. They help Jews, Israelis, Arabs, Christians. Makes no difference. There's no denomination who they help. And uh, so, to her credit, she'll some days be with Arab drivers helping Arabs all day. But she has to be armed. That's what the intel, intel said. You have to be armed if you're going to be inside. But they're not going to provide it. Mug and Adam's not going to provide it. So I didn't know what to do, so I asked around a few friends here and there, and thank God a few guys in Brooklyn helped me. I mean, I ended up paying out most of it myself, but we got hold of a gun, and one of my friends and I actually helped towards the safe, and she's armed now when she goes out and does her volunteer work. And, uh, you know, it's been a crazy few months, so my son finally comes home for one Shabbat, and uh, one Shabbos, and is like lit up. He's, he's not like, you know, messed up, traumatized. He's lit. He's, he's, he's alive with energy. He hasn't had a phone for like two, two uh, what was it, 75 days. He hasn't touched a phone. No phones. Yeah? If he got on a phone, it was like borrowing a reservist. Uh, but imagine like no TikTok, no nothing. He's like cold turkey from a phone. And he said he, it's one of the best feelings he's had. Like he felt alive. And um, he's 19. Yeah. And uh, he, he also had such crazy, crazy stories, first-hand things. Like all the stuff you've seen in the news. Pretty much, not like everything, but the big major moments, like finding those big tunnels with the jeeps going through and all those big moments, he, uh, he was there. It was his unit finding those, those, those big tunnels. It was his unit finding a lot of paraphernalia that proved, unfortunately, they're brainwashing the kids in majority of the houses that he went to, you know, to hate Jews, anti-Semitic materials, Hamas uniforms in many of the houses, um, constant weaponry, even finding some of the hostages stuff, because that's why they go to house to house. They slept in houses night after night after night, each night a different house. 
because they have to go and check out the house if there's any terrorists there, if there's any you know hostage evidence there. And they did find they found a passport from a Thailand guy. They found a bus pass from an Israeli. Like it's real stuff going on. Like he's he's encountered Hamas a bunch of times, and one of the the worst things is they capture the Palestinians. They like force them to stay, and they use them as human shields. And one of the worst scenes he, he remembers was them walking out of the house with babies wrapped around them, Hamas guys. So they, they wouldn't get shot. They were like properly using them as shields. Like, like no one, no other human being would do that. That's like crazy. And uh, he's been in situations where bullets are flying over him, and he's down, and he can't move. And his unit have to figure out how to like get him and a few of the other guys who got caught in the fire, how to get them back into safer place, into a house. He's been in those like life and death situations already. Um, you know, he, unfortunately, many of the people in the larger unit have, have been killed. His specific group, thank God, Leonor, 20 of them, they've all got through so much. They've now recently gone up a few levels and they've joined on with higher level units. So that means they're going after the heavy guys and they're also guarding a lot of tunnels down there in South Gaza. It's heavy, heavy stuff. And having him home and hearing firsthand all this, it was, it was overwhelming. I just had, was um, listening to a class of Rabbi Shlomo Katz, where I live now, this rabbi there. He's a very special person, very beautiful community in a frat. And by the way, when I turn around, I've got like an army around me when I go pray, yeah? Because everyone's like armed to the teeth, it's crazy. I, I don't, I personally don't have a gun, but most of the people where I live do. And uh, Rabbi Shlomo Katz doesn't, but he was speaking today about, about um, the, some, some deep stuff about the situation. And he then suddenly, about 32 minutes into the class, he suddenly mentions my name and he says, he says, and Eli Goldsmith's son, the holy, holy soldier, and he says his name, Bochitzat Bemash, and he says, he says, he came to my house, I, I brought him, he was only home for a day and a half. He went, he went, he used that time, he went to the Mayan. You have to understand. He went to the mikveh Friday, yeah? He went, he knows from the status. He went to the mikveh Shabbat, he prayed, he ate with us, he told stories, he had to pack his bags and leave on sh as Shabbat ended. Like, it was crazy, like, the time frame, and yet he still found time to come meet with different people in the community. So we took him to Rosh Hashanah Katz. He walks into the house. Now, this is the first time he's having Shabbat in a few months. He walks in, and the light of the house blinds him. He's, like, tripping from the light. That's what the rabbi said, and it was, he was. It was, it was a good, the good language he used. He was tripping from the light. Because he'd been every Shabbat till then using glow sticks and being quiet. Like, like one of the craziest scenes he sent me was a video where you can hear him making the blessing on a menorah. And all the soldiers are there. And they're like getting more and more into the blessing and the, the prayer you say as they're lighting the menorah. And this energy, this tension, because suddenly all the captains are like, shh. Because if they hear, you know, a missile will come flying into their house. Yeah? Like you can't make noise. You can't bring light. You have to do it in closed windows, blackened windows. You, have, you can't make known where the IDF are in Gaza, the security risk. And so you see this tension of them getting more and more into the experience of light in the menorah, and then at the same time, they're having to like quiet down, and like they're being shushed, and it's like this intense tension going on. And you see this light in this dark room, and you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. Like they've, they've really gone through crazy stuff, and, but he brought that back home. That was the amazing thing. And Rav Shlomo said, he he was, because he's going through what he's going through, and he's doing it with his whole heart. Like, he really believes. He's, you know how many sites of missiles they've, they've caught, like, that weren't set off, thank God? And they feel that they're saving their people, they're protecting, not, and not just that, they're protecting the Palestinians also, because a lot of the missiles miss and end up in their own place, yeah? So, 
like they just felt like they were saving lives and and they feel that they're doing something so meaningful and it's, it was very inspiring to be around him and he's gone back and he's he's you know focused and he said when he gets out this is the best thing the recent most recent call he, get, he made from this place can Yunus, this intense place i don't know if he was allowed to make the call but he managed to make the call and he said over there my son he said when he gets out, he really he wants to travel a little bit, but not like, you know, like you hear about Israeli soldiers, they go off and they, like, party. Like, he wants to go and, like, see his family in London. He wants to go with friends who are more mature and responsible. He says he wants to find a wife, like a real wife, a real lady. He wants to do a real good job and, like, settle down. Like, he, he's 21, he's only turning 20 this summer. And he's, by the time he gets out, he'll be 21, hopefully. He'll survive this whole thing and we'll, you know, hear only good news. And he, this is what he wants to do. He's thinking about his life, like all those quiet moments when he's guarding a tunnel or whatever it is. He's thinking all those nights sitting in a, in a blackened out house in Gaza. He's thinking about what he wants from his life. So it's like matured him in years, this whole experience. You know what I'm saying? And uh, so this is the good side of this whole war, that people are growing, people are, are, are becoming, you know, he, I felt like I had a teacher in my house. Like he was like my new rabbi. Literally, and everyone felt that who went bumped into him while he was back. And uh, the rabbi of Shama Katz, not only did he bless my son, but he asked my son to bless him. Yeah, and he said the other day, this Shabbat, he said, Where are you getting all your inspiration from, Rabbi, right now? Yeah, imagine he's, he's going from house to house visiting people, mourners. It's very not inspiring, yeah, it's very painful. I mean, some of the mourners are very inspiring because of their belief and their they. The way they're coping with the whole situation is unbelievable. But he's going from, you know, he's a rabbi of a massive community. It's, he's a very famous person. It's a big responsibility, his position. I've been with him a few of those trips. It's crazy going from this house to that house and seeing the parents and all the different reactions. Well, we went to one house together in Tel Aviv, uh, near Tel Aviv, and also in Tel Aviv. And uh, the, the father said to me personally, he said to me, enough of all this, like, you know, We've got to be a bit more Moroccan. You know what Moroccan? If anyone knows Moroccans, they're fiery. Yeah, it's like a joke in the Jewish world. They're from they're right Moroccan. You know what I'm talking about? He said the Israeli needs to be a little bit more Moroccan now. This is like serious because he just lost his daughter in that festival. So you know he's not going to be like yeah let's you know let's all hold hands and dance kumbaya. Like he's people aren't talking that way. They're, they're, it's very emotional. But one of the beautiful things of Shlomo, what he's done, he said we can't get overly emotional. We've got to always bring it back into our value system. We've always got to bring whatever emotions are feeling back into our value system. Anyway, when we were speeding back from Tel Aviv, um, the sirens are going off. It's a crazy experience. You're on the road, and you see everyone pulling over and getting out of their car. So I looked over to see what was Shlomo, because the driver was wanting to see what Shlomo wanted him to do. What did he do? He said, keep going, and we just sped along. But it was, it's an intense thing. Like Everyone's pulling over on the side of the roads. And he's had, he had a close situation where he, was, uh, he pulled over on the side of the roads, and... Um, where he pulled over was an empty field, and the Iron Dome doesn't detonate the ones that are going to land in the Mokham Patur, in an empty space, and it came and landed where he just parked, right next to his car, and he flew from the explosion. Yeah, his car was okay, he was okay, but it was a freaky moment. He came to shul the next day, freaked out, and made a blessing on the Torah, obviously, and thanking Hashem that he survived that. But, um, you know, it's pretty crazy. It's been intense, like, a few months, and right now it's, it hasn't got less intense. People think, you know, oh, it's already been going on, you know, whatever, but it's, it's been intense. So last time I came and spoke more about, you know, the clubhouse and all of that, 
I tell you what, this place is amazing because the real war is by all of us. This is what I'm trying to say to everyone in London as well. We're all part of this war. The soldiers fill your prayers. The soldiers fill whenever you control yourself to not do something that's going to damage you or a family member or something or going to damage yourself. Whenever you control yourself a little bit, a little bit of self-restraint. As, as Stephen Covey says, you want to know what the key to happiness is? Self-constraint. Who's, who would have imagined that? You think this key to happiness is a penthouse, a lot of swag. He says the key to happiness, and he had money, that guy. He said the key to happiness is self-constraint. Because then you feel like you're a master of yourself. You know? you, you're, in, you're in control of your drives. You, you've got some self-respect. It leads to a lot of joy, that, that feeling of accomplishment. And anyone who holds back on something right now that, that could damage them or themselves or others, that in a way is another merit for the soldiers. You have to think that way right now. Like we are protecting all those people out on the front. Every little thing, every little good thought, every little prayer, whatever small thing it is, has a positive effect. And the soldiers are feeling it. As my son said, when those bullets are flying over him and he was on the floor and the guys around him, his team, because they all worked together, they were securing that he should be able to get out of that situation and make it into the house because they're working together as a unit. All your little bit more unity, your little bit more clubhouse action, being together with, with Nuki and everyone else, that, that led to him having that protection. If it wasn't for you guys, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have got that protection. You hear what I'm saying? Yeah. You've got to feel it. It's also mutual the other way. Like, they're doing for you also. They're literally protecting you from terror spreading worldwide. So it's a mutual relationship. We're souls. One of my things is united souls. Like, I really felt that with James and when we were kids. That was one of the moments that really changed my life. That there was such a soul connection between our crew, even when other people came along. But it wasn't like the same kind of... You're always going to have those special souls in your life that you really bond with. And it could be you, you, you crew in the clubhouse are like souls joined together, like going through this journey, going through the challenges of being a teenager and in the early 20s, in 2024. It's not an easy time, you know, for any kids, for any ad- young adults. You know, Joe Rogan says your brain are only getting somewhat together by 25. So up until that point, you know, it's a rough ride, yeah? Yeah, we can all testify. We've all had those, those early years, yeah? We didn't really know, like, it's like a bit confusing... You know, I'm not saying that suddenly you get it down by the age of 30, you're like this master, but you're, you're starting to get a little bit more clarity, like you're on the right road, hopefully, by that point. But um, the point is that we have, to, we have to really strengthen ourselves that we, you know, this is the real war. The real war is with every single one of us internally. And I see that with my son, that he's winning the war by the internal battle. What's the internal battle? That he's got the right mindset. He's focused. His, his mindset is clear. When you talk to him, you're talking to someone who's clear. And you see that that's the key to the success of the individuals in this, in this situation, that they're joining together as a group with clear-mindedness. They know what they're here for. They know what they're doing. They're very clear, and they're very perceptive of their, of their own internal stories. And it's amazing, you know, like some of the trauma is coming not just from the... Uh, you know, from the terrorists. It's coming also internally from the army because there's a lot of rules of what you can do. You know, you can't just take out people. There's rules how they have to do it. And that that can also create trauma for the soldiers that they're feeling a bit like overly, you know, conscious of if they killed someone, did they do it the right way? It's all videoed, everything. They have cameras on their helmets. Everything's being videoed, what they're doing. So they're being watched also from within as well. So it's, it's, in, it's like a tightrope. They're walking this narrow bridge the whole time. 
I just saw like an Instagram video today. I don't know, just it caught my mind. And it was all these guys riding on narrow and narrower, like on bikes, narrow and narrow places, like on the edge of waterfalls and dams and buildings, and it gets narrower and narrower. So I wrote underneath, the world's a very narrow, narrow bridge. Most important thing is not to be afraid. Who knows where that's from? Anyone knows? Rabbi Nachman, yeah. The world's a very narrow bridge, and this, this guy Instagram's inspired me that concept. They're getting more and more narrow, and yet they're still going forward, still going ahead, still balancing, not falling either side, jumping even from place to place on the bikes. I don't know how they do it, but these guys are amazing. But the point is, the key is that they're not afraid. Yeah? We should maybe sing that at some point, maybe. I don't know, sing it now. Let's sing. You, it's not the time for family, but anyway. And I'm not such a guy to sing that song. I don't know. You want to sing it? Anyone want to sing it? No? No, I don't feel it. I'll sing something else. We're going to sing this family song in a minute. Anyway, I want to just, uh, before I do, I just want to ask James to say something a little bit. Um, he's been through a lot with me personally. He knows my flow. And uh, he's also got his beautiful flow. He's, he's an amazing journey from graffitiing in my room in Edgware to like having this creative empire that's inspiring so many other young professionals to use their creative talents. It's, for me, it's one of the most inspiring journeys in, I've seen by anyone in business because not everyone gets to do what they're passionate about and he really is. So, you know, he gets to talk about it publicly. I've seen it, heard it. So I hope I'm not, I'm not putting you on the spot, am I? No. You are, but I'll take it. Okay. Come sit next to me, so the, the good old life. Are you mind? No, not on. No, okay. We'll just hear his voice. Okay. Go on in. Um, what can I say? <coughs> uh, I just, yeah, I think it's really important to find what's inside which makes you feel alive. That's kind of like what you're saying. And, and trust that. Trust that instinct and intuition. And yeah, I was definitely someone who didn't know what they wanted to do and I knew I always had creativity in some way, shape or form. I learned to play the drums and I got really interested in graffiti and music and bands and just kind of went along, went to university to study music and art and started a project which um, I did as my final degree show. It's about connecting people to art, it's about making it more accessible to people, um, thinking about it from being an artist but also being someone in the world who finds it like quite alienating walking to an art gallery or feeling quite intimidated by that really. And yeah, that, that project I've continued to do for the last 20 years um, and like I've done a recent project around here at Wembley Stadium and they're building the new stadium. They needed art on the walls and through a serendipitous sequence of events, I had a picture of one of my pieces was on my mum's wall, and um, I think it was her cousin came over and saw this piece on the wall, and he was in business with an ex-England footballer, and he knew the then um, CEO of Wembley Stadium, and he saw the picture on the wall. He's like, "They're going to need stuff in the stadium. Do you want to get involved? Do you want to like have the opportunity to meet this guy?" And, um, tell them about what you do, so I was like, yeah, 100%, that's an opportunity I can't turn down, and um, for everything I had, I, I do this with my, a friend of mine, a very close friend of mine, as soon as I graduated, I was like, you need to come with me on this journey, I've got an idea, I think it's going to be something interesting, and 
he like makes up all the things that I'm really bad at. He's really good <laughs> at. We're two completely opposite people. Best um, partnership. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to go on the journey with someone else as well. Just thought it would be more fun, and you know, I could get more done. I didn't think I had it in me to do it all on my own. Anyway, so we pitched for Wembley Stadium, and um, we put everything we had into this presentation and this proposal. And at the time, we thought it was the best thing ever. You look back at it now, it's total amateur hour. <laughs> and it was like we found it, we printed it, we thought it was really good. And then they called us back in for a meeting. And it's actually something we celebrated our 20th year. Wow, congrats. This year. And, Amazing. And someone asked me, we had a party, someone asked me what the best moment of the last 20 years was. And I was saying we got called back into Wembley and we didn't know we'd won the project at this stage. And they sat us down and they started rolling out these huge plans of Wembley Stadium. And you can see it criticised, I think, my business like on all the plans and you're going to be doing this area and this area and this area and I was sitting with my business partner and it was just like so I was like I just need to go to the toilet and I like went out and then he came out two seconds later we literally like high fived in the corridor like went mad for like five seconds and like I put ourselves back together walked back into the room and carried on the meeting as if nothing had happened so we had to have <coughs> and but you're still having it till now that's the most amazing thing yeah, 20 years later yeah and, and the only the only thing that I know I really genuinely know nothing about business, really know nothing about anything other than to be present. I think the entire journey has been about being in the moment and figuring it out in that moment and taking a step and then that step leads you to the next moment and you know, using what you've learned from your experience you kind of just make a play, whichever play feels right, trusting your instincts and intuition and you will either learn something from that or it will take you to the next stage and I've continued to do that for the past 20 years and continue to live my life like that and it's held me in good stead because I think there's a lot of talk about listening to everything on the outside, but I think yeah. it all comes from listening to Internal, the yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We have everything we need. By the way, his top is one of his like fun brands, like side thing, right? Yeah, yeah, I have a clothing brand. Shesh, yeah. Shesh. Shesh. Yeah. That was you used to do that graffiti like back in the day. Yeah, um, yeah. So um, just yeah, just expression, truth, expression, connection, love. That's that's the circle. Yeah, from jamming for years and yeah. going on mad adventures and like it's a fun journey. It's a fun journey, yeah. We're here for the ride together guys. It's not like a lone lone journey. We're always that's a very important thing. So know you're not alone. You've got your brothers, you've got people who care about you, you've got the clubhouse. They really care about you guys, like sincerely. I know that for sure. Like I've seen Ari and Lolu and I don't know where Nuki is. Last time I called him a werewolf. He's coming, he's coming. He's coming. Yeah, so Nuki's on the way. I've seen these guys like all night, all day, going out from, I don't know, since when? Beginning of 2000. Yeah, could be that long. I mean, it's over 20 something years also, no? Yeah, yeah, 2001. 2001, yeah, hear that. More than 23 years. That's amazing. So, uh, here he is. We're just speaking about Nuki. I know. <laughs> hey, man. Midnight, midnight Rabbi, guys, you know what it is? Midnight Rabbi, you remember him? Yeah, perfect, we left the chair for you. We're going to jam a little bit? Yeah. By the way, I'm not really jamming so much these days. My business is more booking others to jam. I have a Unity Bookings, I have Unity Marketing. It's all about helping others shine. Promoting other people's music, talent, speaking, 
but nevertheless, I still think I remember the word somewhat. So this is a song that was originally Emily from Prince William's birthday party in the 90s to family in the 2000s. We need it more than ever to be with family. I just actually had all my music deleted. There was a whole story that the guy who paid for, for the distribution, the card got reported, whatever. So it was a whole story. My music came down and I decided I've got to re-release this. So I'm slowly, slowly re-releasing all my tracks one by one. And this week I released, uh, the, the two week, a week before I came here, Family, this song. So it's back up on Spotify, thank God, on YouTube, or Apple Music, whatever you use. Family Ellie Goldsmith, that's the name of the, you want to find it. We've been considering all of us Without the essence of simple trust All the hassles we won't see Sharing laughing eternally Relationships and central thoughts that have been forgiven now my flooding mind, casual decision, this body language is where our heart lays. You know I see us now, family. You know I see us
Having James here took it to a different level. I really felt that. So, well, and you guys, you're contributing just by being part of this. So I really appreciate it, listening and sharing. And, you know, I'm going to ask you now, if anyone has any questions, that's, you know, I hope James doesn't mind putting one on the spot again. But, you know, if anyone wants to ask anything, it's so important that we hear what you're feeling. You know, you've also got your, your message. You know, I can learn from you guys more maybe than you can learn from me. So if anyone wants to ask anything or say anything, Please, anybody? Whatever you're feeling. Whatever you want. Whatever you want. It could be like, you know, we've got a, a guy who's really achieved in creative space and business. You know, it's, you've got a guy who's living in Israel and really trying to bring a lot of light as much as I can to. How did you become successful? Me personally? James, question. James, he's the he's the success story. I'm more like the. <laughs> well, you get there, you get well, it depends what success means, really. Doesn't it? That's true. Good answer. <laughs> how we define success? Well, what was your um, inspiration to get you to where you are? Um, I know you talked about a bit about painting, Wembley. Yeah, my inspiration. So when I was, so I mentioned playing the drums, right? So I played drums. So <coughs> for the words, when I was six years old, um, my parents bought me a drum kit, like a cheap Toys R Us toy drum kit. Um, and I remember, it took me ages to learn to play. My dad taught me. First beat was um, Sergeant Pepper's by the Beatles. 
simple 4-4 beat. Just learning to coordinate left hand, right hand, left foot, right foot. And then I finally got it after practicing, practicing, practicing for ages. And then that feeling that I got was like the most intoxicating feeling I've ever felt in my life. And I think that I've been chasing that feeling ever since everything that I've been doing. It's all about that. And that feeling was created expression, flow. It was almost like I was just a vessel was coming through me and I wasn't even doing it. And like that tapped me into something which I didn't really understand. But I think where a lot of creative, where all our creativity comes from is like sort of beyond and we're vessels for it. And so the thing that inspires me or the thing that drives me to do all these things is to feel that feeling. And it's like when you're in that space and everybody will appreciate and understand that feeling because we've all had it before like you're not trying it's effortless time is like non-existent you almost like transcend the everyday and you go somewhere where it's just so pure and so real and like if we can all get to that place that's a beautiful place to be and i think we're all the highest expressions of ourselves that's yeah. where real peace is if imagine if then no one would become a terrorist if they're experiencing that kind of there's no terror there's no war it's it's just about connection and flow creative energy and that's why it's so important to help build more creative uh, expressions and outlets like what the, the boys clubhouse give you a beautiful studio i remember in, in when i worked for all the yeshivas in america in uh in Eric's as well and one of the first things i made sure there was a music studio made, we raised money we got a studio and the drum kit and the music equipment and it's so important for the guys to have that outlet to have those creative outlets i mean some of the guys told me that just rocking it out on the drums for like an hour or two save them from doing some crazy stuff. Yeah. They just get all that emotions and that pent up <coughs> feelings into the drumming, into the rhythm, into the motion and schwitz. They just, you know, it's great for the body, great for the soul, and they're just schwitzing on the drums. It's, you know, whatever it is that does does it for you, you know, do it in sport, do it. You have to be creative, creative in how you're doing business, you know, creative how you even present things, you know. I, one, I think that's one of my things. And right now we're going to be faced with what, a new challenge or artificial intelligence. Uh, for example, for my marketing company, I've got like some really good feedback about my posts recently. And I said to them, I just want to be straight. It was from AI. Yeah? I just went to chat GP3 or whatever, plus or four, whatever one it was. And I said, you know, give me this and this and that. It gave the right prompts. I got an amazing post. It said, you write so well. I, I said, I don't actually write well at all. I said, the post came out like professional, crisp. So what's the answer when you're going to have all this stuff done for you? Like same with even image generators now, music generated. It's going to, you know, it's going to go into the art space as well. And uh, one of the things we've got to figure out is how to bring it back to being not artificial intelligence, but authentic intelligence. Take the same initials, AI, and bring it into authentic intelligence, where it comes, as we're saying already, the inter internal flow. That's going to be the solution to the whole technological revolution that's going on, that it shouldn't get out of control. They always talk about on all these things, government regulations, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, that's great. But really, the real solution is internal people that are more soul and connected into the flow, then the technology will have to be respectful to that truth. No problem, man. You're not going to get it from outside. You're not going to get it. AI is never going to be able to come up with that kind of authentic intelligence, that real flow that we're talking about right now. And that kind of feeling, that experience of soul, it's, it's not going to come from there. So that's that's always going to be the difference. And so I'll, at the moment, certainly in time, we learn 
It can imitate it, but will never be the real thing. It will never be the real authentic flow. Although it's our listening, 95% of the people and population wouldn't know the difference. Deep down, they'll know. That's what I, I believe that the people have self knowledge. And people, when things get so crazy and artificial and fake, then they're even hungrier for the real thing. They become really thirsty. Like I've seen it in the Jewish world, Torah world. I'll be honest. That we know this, Ari. Like he's in the educational space, and you see uh, more than that, more than the educational space, because it's a whole. You know, what, 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 what the boys' house clubhouse is like a whole another thing. But in terms of the space being having to deal with that space, one of the beautiful things that Rabbi Jacobson says that our generation are souls of truth. We're not going to accept the old system that was. We're not going to stand for, for BS. Excuse my language. We, are, we only want BSD. We want the real thing. Yeah? We don't, we're not going to stand for pe people who claim they're religious leaders. As you mentioned this word, the guy just went out, religious, all this religious stuff, and they're not really sincere. They're not really caring about soul and people around them. and They're not really compassionate. They're not really living the Torah, the soul of the Torah. You know, YY the other day was crying on a podcast, crying on a podcast about some of the questions that people are asking in the Jewish world. It shows such a lack of compassion and soul, like basic menschkeit Jewish ways of being. It's like, <coughs> what is going on with these people? Another rabbi, Rabbi Asher Weiss, he said they shouldn't even be leaders, some of these people. He said they should quit being leaders. That's, I've got it. It's a famous recording gone around. What kind of questions came up? So the questions that came up on those bases were, I don't really like repeating it, but without getting too into it, the main point was that the, some of the religious elements, the so-called religious, they, they are claiming that this whole army-like situation is creating a weakness in the respect towards the Torah world, and it's going to take away their students from respecting Torah to becoming more uh, supporters of the army. Yeah? <coughs> Which, why was like crying at that, such a mindset? How can you think that way? These people are saving your lives. It's, it's not even like a thought. And you're so insecure. He said back, he said, they're so insecure. That you, if you're really secure about your, your journey and your spirituality, you will never be threatened if a different path is, is getting more recognition right now. You'd be like, respect for them, because everything I'm doing is about strengthening those people also. Like, I'm not insecure. What are you talking about? So, so he was very strong on that point, and. Do you think they felt insecure when reformers? The, the, and, and, um, the, the no, I don't. I mean, the Chosim Sofer, for example, who was the strongest against reform, who was so strong, his approach, I don't think it came from insecurity at all. It came from such clarity. So that if it's coming from clarity, then then it's a different thing. But for example, uh, you know, the idea of having confidence. Once again, it's an internal thing. You're not going to get the, the uh, reassurance from outside. Like, even like now, like, Baruch Hashem Ari has just been, like, get up to this MBE. It's a big thing, and it's a big, big up to Ari. You know, the MBE deserves it 100%. Everyone should feel But at the same time, I, I really don't feel like his, even if it's going to be on his email signature for the next 10 years, until he gets his uh, CBE or the next one up, or Sir Ari, yeah, We'll see it, yeah, but that's only in order to help everyone respect the clubhouse that little bit more. Not that he needs it, but just that little bit more. And that little bit more make a little bit of difference in this world. You have to be real, yeah? The letters help a little bit, yeah? That's one of my issues. I'm not so good at that. You know, the whole presentation system thing. You know, you have to play the game a little bit. 
But at the same time, it's not what's going on here. That's not what it's about. I never felt that. And it was like, when I heard about it, it was like, it's like a side thing. It's not like the clubhouse is about Ari, you know, becoming this hero. It's, it's, it's about you guys all becoming heroes. And Ari's helping that happen. And, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing. The realness of it, we know what it's really about. And because we're here firsthand, we see the realness about, behind it. You know, um, my uncle, he got awarded, I think, got CBE. And... Uh, it, it was a big deal, you know, in the family, and my grandma was so proud, and she went, she asked, got to come to the ceremony, and, um, you know, it was a big moment for our family, and my father, there's a picture recently of my father standing in uh, Camden, and I, this is big respect to my father, like, his brother's got a lot of public acknowledgement for everything he's done, and my father's standing there looking like getting nachas, like, not jealousy, nothing, just nachas, pure nachas, that his, his brother's getting awarded with the walk of frame and Camden, I think they have all these like different rock and roll tributes on the street there. And uh, so one of the, one of his mates said, wrote, funnily enough, like, I, no, it was actually one of the famous musicians there. I don't remember which one it was. One of the famous guys like, what's such a big deal? It just means he's now got his name on the floor where a bunch of people are going to walk and piss and all this stuff <laughs> and make fun of the musicians. But, you know, it's just a bit of banter amongst friends, but the point is that... Um, we have to realize that the point, that what made my uncle, for example, successful as well, if I want to quote him, is he had two principles that he, he's told me as well. And I, I was arguing, I sent him a message today, I said, uh, in my opinion, the time is now. But he, in a certain, I want to like get active in certain things, with try to get him moving in the space that, you know, I feel like Jewish people need as much like support as ever right now, like more than ever. So I said to him two things. He needs to be... I mean, he said to me, and I said back to him, now's the timing. Honesty and timing. Honesty, you have to be honest with your people and timing. That was his two principles that led him to so much success in that business because you're dealing with people that a lot of management or promotion people are not going to be honest because you don't want to, you know, upset the star. You know, it's hard. You get a lot of yes people around you, a lot of, uh, yeah, you know what I'm talking about? Like everyone's complimenting them and saying how great they are. But comes Harvey, and he even had a show about it. Did you ever see that on TV? He used to go, he, how did he help musicians? He just used to rip it out, like Gordon Ramsay style, you know, when he goes to the kitchens. But aren't they doing a stage show of Live Aid? When? I think that's in, in the West End. He's, oh, wow. Is playing your uncle. Really? Yeah. So that's going to be the kind of stuff you're going to see in that stage show. He'll give it to Bob or whoever. He's not going to like be, you know, honeycombing and sweetening everything. He's going to say how it is. And in that business, you have to be a little bit more to the truth to get the message over to these guys that they need to get their act together because they're bumming around being where the arts, art level, the creative space has gone too far. But they're no longer balanced and focused on, on what they need to do for that night, for that show, for that event, for that album, whatever it is, for that tour. And I know firsthand a little bit of management I did. It's hard space to constantly be on this guy's case who's a celeb. And you have to keep pushing him to get up in the morning and you know, turn up for this and turn up for that. It's a lot of responsibility. So anyway, why I'm saying this all is just you've got to figure out what it is your internal principles are to guide you to that next day. And I think that's what James did a good job. I think that's what the clubhouse is all about, helping you guys get there. And uh, having that support is so important. And the best part is when you get to a certain place, now you can give it back. You can help the clubhouse with their journey, continue doing this. And you yourself can be role models in that, in your space. So we'll just say uh, one, one quick blessing to everyone. Um, 
and to James and to everyone who came today, everyone should be blessed. We hear only good news about my son, about all the soldiers. We hear only good news about all of our journey. The clubhouse should keep growing and growing and uh, should just keep providing these amazing opportunities. And uh, we know from this week's past, you know, there's, there's miracles going on in Egypt. And everything that happened to the Mitzrim that was smashing them to pieces was healing the Jewish people more and more. So realize sometimes the darkness that's going on out in the world is about bringing out a deeper light of healing. And even though it's hard to watch the pain outside, you know, I, my parents took me to a film. I don't usually go to movies, like, I'll be honest. Uh, I went to see Oppenheimer. I don't know why, but that was just not normal. But I went to, with my parents. To, to, yeah, they took me to this movie tonight. Um, of It was uh, what's Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, it was the main actor. It's called One, One Life, I think. One life, yeah, one life. That's the whole concept of the film, because every life is a quote from the Torah, basically. You save a life, you save the world, yeah? So that, that was one of the main lines in the film, one life. It's called one life. Save one life, save the whole world. So he saved this guy, this, uh, this uh, he was a Jew, but he was like not so Jewish, but he still, nevertheless, was a very special person. And he saved, he saved uh, 693 children or something. From Czechoslovakia. And it just came out now, and I was crying, honestly, the whole way through, because I, I felt like what's going on here, and like, when I think of, say, Daniel, you know, our, our good friend Daniel, um, unfortunately, Oliver Shalom, you know, I don't know if you, any of you guys knew Daniel. You knew Daniel? Daniel Burrell? So Oliver Shalom, like, he's one of the guys who was in here, and we were in Yeshiva together in Israel, and, you know, from back in the day, and it's very, like, overwhelming to think about his journey and all the other boys that I remember when I worked for Nevei Sion, going a few times to Beit Shemesh to watch these guys get buried at such a young age. And you save one life, you save a whole world. And this guy now, by saving those 600 people, he's got thousands and thousands of people alive because of him. Thousands. Because it grows, you know, they have children and they grow and... Like we have to understand, and not just that, just one of the things that hit me so powerfully in this movie, and it's so amazingly acted, is how each person is their own world, literally. And that, that, was, the, that was the whole painful point. He couldn't get over that he wasn't able to do more. And that's, that's really the kind of feeling we need to have. I always have that image of the Baba Chereba, or like Moshe Rabbeinu in, in Egypt. He was fighting with Hashem, like, I want to get these people out, save the Jewish people. He only managed to save one-fifth. Four-fifths were stuck there. Yeah? So I said to Rav Orish, I'm going to end off with this question, a, a question I had to Rav Orish, so this is my last point. Yeah, I, asked, I traveled for many years with Rav Orish to America, Holy Rabbi in Israel. I worked for him for about five years. And I asked him on this plane ride to Miami, I sat next to him, and I said to him, what's going to be with the four-fifths in our generation? Because they say whatever happened in Egypt when the redemption then, it's going to be the same now. So four-fifths, I'm the one-fifth from my family. I don't want any of them stuck in this, this crazy world, like in the dark aspect of it. I want all of us to get into a good place. Like the, the way James is describing, that when you're in that flow and that positive space, like, you know, unfortunately when you're not tuned into that, you can get caught up with all kinds of craziness. I want all the people to get out of this darkness that's going on where people are in pain and, you know, suicidal and all this dark stuff that's going down with the drug addictions, the internet addiction, all this, all this distraction and pain. So I want all of our people to be able to escape that restrictive... That's really what Egypt was about. It was this place of restriction and pain. And we have to be able to overcome that through tuning into the soul level. That's... That's, that's the answer. And these seven habits, these seven commandments, these seven ways of values, ways of being that happen in this week's past, the seven plagues, and the next week, the other three, and the full ten, this idea of binary, one and zero, ten, these ways of tuning into the true blueprint of what a soul's about and what, what's going to give salvation. That kind of energy 
that's going on. I want everyone to tune in. So I said to Rav Oresh, what's going to be like? So he said to me, he said, don't worry, everyone's going out this time. It's not true. Why? I said, but it's, you know, they don't seem so interested. You know, they're more interested in their holiday to Spain or whatever. So he said, he said to me, no, that everyone's going out. Because everyone's nowadays involved somewhere or another. Everyone cares. You see now with this war, everyone's caring about the situation. Everyone's waking up. And not just the Jews, the whole world's waking up. You know how many non-Jewish people we had come to Israel, like uh, cowboys came from, uh, who was it? Uh, Iowa. And there was a, lot, a few other places that came from. And we have Jerusalem, who, who are very close. And, you know, there's so many types of people waking up to the situation where they, they really feel this need to, like, help support this, the message of soul and not this message of terror. And this is, like, what we need to tune into. And this is, this is available more than ever now, this clarity. And we have it within. It's happening. This revolution's happening. This soul revolution's happening. As, as much as the world seems to get less soulful, the more soulful we're becoming. The fact that the teenage culture now won't accept, you know, they're not going to, even my own son, he's not going to talk to me like I talk to my father. If I spoke the way he spoke to me, my father would have given me a, yeah. But it's because he's such a truthful person. So he, he won't stand up for my BS. So it makes me a better person by having a son like that. The, the souls of the generation just getting more and more pure, more and more refined, more true, more real. And that's going to help us become more real as parents and tune into their light. They have so, I've, I just gave a whole session last night about all the things I'm learning from my kids. I spoke to this like breast of crew in Edgeway, sort of thing. I just spoke about all the stuff I'm learning from my, my son in the army, my son in yeshiva, my son in uh, Beit Sefer, my son who just flew to Uman with his own money that he worked so hard for, to the Ukraine and this place and that place. I spoke about my kids because they've become like my own teachers, you know. So look at your people around you as guides and, and lights and all the things they're teaching us so much. You know, I have a friend like James. He teaches, I just get so much inspiration. So it's just amazing when you have people like that in your life. It just it, surround yourself with people that inspire you, that, uh, that add to your, to your own creative flow. And, uh, and if we're all doing that, it's going to be happy days coming up. Happy days, I mean. That's it. Okay, good times. Thank you. Thank you.